0: So, we're in our fourth week of the Book of Ezra. Uh, It'll be a six-week series, so we're halfway through, and throughout this series, uh, we've been discussing the process of rebuilding as we reclaim God's promises for our lives. Uh, It's through failure, forgetting what is important, and sin. We've all experienced some type of exile in some way throughout our lives. However, just as the the Jewish people in Ezra walk through the process of rebuilding their church and their community and individual relationships with God, we too, as people now, are called to return to the Lord and do the exact same. And as Pastor Jessica and Pastor Richard have shown us over the past three weeks, uh, the book of Ezra chronicles the return of the exiles from Babylonia after 538 BCE. It covers two different returns of the Jewish people. Both are significant in that... The first highlights the reconstruction of the temple, which we've been covering and will close out today. And the second highlights the reconstruction of community uh, within Jewish life, which we'll get to next week. The book of Ezra is really one of those cool books of the Bible to read on the days in which we actually don't believe any of this. We all have those days. And... It's cool to read on those days because this book is full of prophets, prophecy, and history. So much of what happens, because it happens within Persian royalty, it's written down, it's scribed, they can go back and reflect and look and see how things match up with history, see how God's people have moved through history, and these stories match up with what general historians know about the past. Ezra does that for us. For instance, how Pastor Jessica told us that the promise of Ezra actually began with God making a covenant with Abraham all the way in the beginning, in Genesis. That's where this began, centuries ago, and how three different books of the Bible, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, all laid out promises of God's people, the the experience that they have in this book. And then Pastor Richard reminded us that just like the Jewish people returning from exile, we are also called to first build the altar before the temple. Because worship is the place where we always begin again. And then last week, Pastor Jessica left us with a warning about how the enemy doesn't like when people stop wondering and start following God. The opposition that the Jewish people in Ezra faced every time, they're like, okay, we can do it this time. And then they'd get hit again. The enemy does not like that doesn't like when we stop wandering, and then all of a sudden, because the enemy doesn't like it, distractions and fears and things that we haven't thought of in maybe 10 years come to the forefront of our mind to remind us why we're disqualified to do something. It's not true. The enemy tries to disqualify us from moving into our promise. And we left the Jewish people last week at the end of a standstill and the beginning of provision. You see, chapter four highlights how other people slandered the name of the Jews and basically convinced the the king at that time that they should not be able to build their temple because they're bad people. Remember what they did? They're bad. So the king said, okay, they shouldn't build the temple. So they were defeated again. He rooted himself in slander and gossip instead of the truth and forced the Jewish people to stop their rebuilding. But thankfully, prophets like Zechariah and Haggai came to the Jewish people and did what prophets do best. They looked at the defeated people and confidently said, but God. That's what they do. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. you excited? I'm excited. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I love you. I thank you for being with us in this space. I thank you for creating this space for us, Lord. I pray that distractions stay at the door. I pray that whatever is waiting for us as we leave this place waits until we leave this place. I dedicate this time and this space to you and to you alone, Lord. We are your people, and we're here to hear your word. Lord, I have plans for this sermon I have things that I have written down, but if you want to do something else, you do it. This is for you. We love you. Amen. So we left off in Ezra chapter five. I mean, I'm sorry, in chapter four. And so we're going to pick up today in chapter five. And I believe this, look at how big this is. Isn't it amazing? Okay. All right. So where Jess left us off last week was the beginning of chapter five which essentially is when the Israelites are defeated and then God sends two prophets. He sends Zechariah and Haggai to them to encourage them. And so we see chapter five start with the encouragement. They show up and it says, then Zerubbabel's son, uh, well, that doesn't matter. Zerubbabel and Joshua then became inspired to start rebuilding again. And that's where we pick up the story today. So we're gonna read through 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 3 through 5 right now. So either on the screen or you can just listen to me and try to envision it yourself. That's always fun too. okay At this time, Tatanai, the governor of Trans-Euphrates and Shethar Bonzai and their associates went to them and asked, to the Jewish people, and asked, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? They also asked, what are the names of those who are constructing this temple? But the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go to King Darius and his written reply be received. Now, these parts of the story, I know we just went from chapter 4 to chapter 5 very quickly, They're just a chapter away for for us, but when we left the Jewish people before when they were defeated, that was 16 years ago. What have they been doing for 16 years? (laughs) I also kind of want a side Bible of all the times that the Israelites just kind of wandered that's not recorded. Like, what are they doing? Who are they hanging out with? Probably bad things, but I want to know. And so 16 years, they're just sitting there. But for us, it's just a chapter. And we see the governor come, Tata and I come up, and say, what are you doing? I mean, if I saw a project of runes sitting there for 16 years in my community, and then all of a sudden people are starting to rebuild it, I would have questions too. And so he walks up and he says, what's going on here? Who gave you authority to do this? Also, who are you? They're just building. They don't even care, right? They don't even care. And now based on the letter we're about to read after that, after this situation, they most certainly had a full conversation with the governor, right? They had a lot of talking going back and forth. I'm sure everybody who was working on the project came forward to have this conversation with the governor about what they were doing. Um, But Ezra, who's the presumed author of this book, needed us to know that one thing was different this time with the building. He didn't give us the total specifics of what that conversation entailed but he wanted us to know one thing. And that thing is in verse five, where it says, but the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews and they were not stopped until a report could go to King Darius and his written reply be received. That's what was different. The eye of their God was watching over them. So the elders didn't need to fear this time. They didn't even feel like they needed to give an explanation this time. They just said, this is what we're supposed to be doing. And so the governor is like, all right, cool. Well, I'm going to write to King Darius. We'll see how he feels about this. Uh, and then we see what he did. It's a, it's, I mean, it's very fancy and super formal. This must have taken a long time. So by the time that he walks away from them, they don't stop building. They didn't get defeated by him. So they're continuously building as they go and write this whole thing. And then as they go to send it and meet with King Darius. So when they finally get this letter to King Darius, the letter says cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people are building it with large stones and placing the timber in walls. The work is being carried on with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We question the elders and ask them, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and to finish it? We also asked them their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. And this is the answer they gave us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. We are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished, King Solomon. But because our ancestors angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, the Chaldean, the king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus gave them to a man named Shezabar, whom he had appointed governor. And he told him, take these articles and go deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Shezabar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem from that day to the present, and it has been under construction, but it is not yet finished. That's a lot. I do like that they gave the Jewish people a lot of credit for how strongly they were rebuilding this. Uh, A few things to note. He specifically talked about the, in the beginning, when he's talking about the structure that they're building, that they were big stones. These stones were so big that they couldn't be carried. They had to be rolled. So Tatanai wanted King Darius to know that they were building something that was meant to last. And the way in which he talked about timber being woven into the structure. That's how they tried to protect against earthquakes. And so this was something that was not supposed to move for a very long time. So the seriousness of this was in the first two sentences of his letter about the fact that the Israelites were building to stay. And it was Nebuchadnezzar who took control of them, but it was God who gave, the, gave Nebuchadnezzar the control. The Israelites made it clear to the governor in this letter that because their ancestors, they took on ancestral sin as their own and said, actually, because our ancestors messed up, our God gave King Nebuchadnezzar control of us. He didn't just take it because he could, he was given it from our Lord. That's why we were in this situation. They understood finally who was in control which is the only reason that when Tatanai comes to to say, "Um, excuse me, what are you doing here? The Jewish people basically say, sorry, we're too busy to even tell you our names. Just know this is of the Lord. Goodbye. That's it. So King Darius, being wiser than the previous king who just believed the gossip and ended it, he said, you know, if they say that King Cyrus had said something about what they were allowed to build. We should see if he actually did that. We should see if it's written down somewhere. And so he properly goes to make sure, or sends someone to make sure, that there's a record of this. And it turns out that there is. King Cyrus made a record, and he apparently wrote it at his va- where all the kings vacationed at his vacation home. Um, so he was in a really good mood too when he wrote this, which is great. So it's still there, and they're able to pick it up and bring it back and read it and make sure that this is exactly what King Cyrus had said. And the thing is, even though King Darius had what King Cyrus said that the, that the Jewish people could continue to build, he said, you know what? I see what he said here, and I'm going to add some things because I want to make this even stronger for them. So what does he do? It's in Ezra chapter 6, 8 through 12. He says, Moreover, I hereby decree what you are to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. Their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and olive oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone, anyone, defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their, their own house, their house, and they are to be impaled on it. Ugh. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God who has caused this, his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. So on top of what King Cyrus said, King Darius is saying more these people are to build. And he was so serious about killing people who got in the way. It's, he apparently killed like 3,000 people that way. Um, not for this, but he was kind of an intense guy, and so he would impale people a lot. Um, so when people heard this decree from him, they are like, oh, you're serious. Okay, all right, we know what you do. Yeah, we'll follow this. And so the Jewish people were then able to continue their diligent work building the temple because they had the backing of King Cyrus. Then they had the backing of King Darius. And then the governor just went on his way. You didn't want to be impaled. Last week, Pastor Jessica talked about how opposition often follows God's people. It was true then and it's true now. And the Israelites, as we know, um, weren't always known to stand up to opposition in this, in this book and many others. And we've seen that here play out in the story. But, but what was different this time? Right? The opposition didn't stop them. Sixteen years had passed since the last time they tried to build the temple in chapter 4. So what changed this time to make them resistant to that opposition? Two things made them resistant to the opposition. The prophets and the promise. The prophets inspired them, and the promise sustained them. That's what they needed. So the prophets, we meet them in the beginning of chapter 5. And we met them last week, Haggai and Zechariah. But it was because they came to God's people that Zerubbabel and Joshua were able to pick up themselves and start building again. Who knows what condition they found them in? Who knows what they were occupying their time with? They didn't care what they saw. They came and said, this is what you're supposed to do. Get up. And as prophets of God, they touched on these truths. And these truths were so deeply embedded in the people that they recognized them as they were spoken over them. So they knew it had to be from their God. And it's not just what they say, right? It's also their presence, Our words are only half of what we bring to people. We can be saying the right things, but if our spirit and our presence isn't matching with that, people will know we're not real. We can talk a good game, but if it's not in our heart, then it matters nothing. Because we know that some people, regardless of their words, either give us life or drain us with their presence. But when we're surrounded by people filled with the Spirit of the Lord, you can't help but feel braver. It just oozes out of people and sticks on others. That's how it happens. It can't be contained. Your spirit, then, can't help but recognize something otherworldly in them, something holy, something that says, I know what you see here, but I need you to trust what I know is going to happen. Regardless of the rubble, the past 16 years that you've been sitting on, I know a temple is going to be built here. You can't see it, but I can, and I need you to trust me. And that confidence makes us look at that pile of runes and actually see the temple, envision it. That confidence makes us stand firm when questioned about what we're doing and what authority we have to be acting. And that confidence makes us continue even though we know everyone is trying to discredit us. It doesn't matter. And so much of the story gets focused on King Darius um, remembering to return to the decree that King Cyrus had made, which is true, right? But the rebuilding started because people like Haggai and Zechariah refused to ever leave the presence of God. That's what moves the kingdom forward because we could have all the decrees in the world. (laughs) But if we don't have prophets and people filled with the presence of God moving things forward, we go nowhere. That's what set this all into motion. It's so easy for us to forget important things, right, important matters, to forget the bigger picture as we look at our life situation. And it would be easy for the Jewish people to do the same in this story. You know, the present is closer to mine than the past. our vision is so limited. They've been sitting and waiting for 16 years because of their present situation. And without people prophesying over us, we may look at those ruins for another 16 years and another 16 years. The prophets inspired them to move, and the promise sustained them in their work. Now, the promise. Our very own Becky Farr, who will most likely be at evening service, likes to say that hope is delicious. delicious. It's one of my favorite sayings because it's so true. And the Jewish people could move forward in that delicious hope finally because they knew the word of the Lord. They knew. They just needed it called out from somebody else. They needed to be reminded. And when the prophet's words matched what they knew of their God, what they knew of their God's teaching and their God's words towards their lives, it came together. And they recognized it as something that they could move forward with. They knew that it was sourced in their creator. But if we don't know the words of the Lord and somebody comes to encourage us with it, we may think they're just crazy. The Bible's full of crazy stuff. If we don't recognize it, we can't take it as our own and move. But the hope of the prophets matched their hope in the Lord so they knew that the promise was real. That's why there's no timidness when Tatanai comes to inquire what they're doing. They didn't even feel like they needed to waste time trying to convince anybody of anything. They just stated what they were doing and kept working. Because they were working through the lens of the promise of God. But because we're human and we need lots of reminding, just like the Jewish people, of the promises of the Lord, um, we, we need to constantly go back to them. Because our hearts are so, so limited. And they're fragile. They break all the time. As soon as opposition comes from us, for us, we just hide, we cower, we Adam and Eve it, and just try to cover ourselves up like this. And we see the necessity for reminders throughout all of Scripture. God constantly challenges his people to remember. And for the Jewish people, to this day, prescribed rituals for them to remember. Remember. Right In the book of Joshua, God commanded the Hebrew children to build an altar after they crossed the Jordan to remind future generations of what happened because they would have no idea how painful that past was. Remind them of where God has taken them from. The Jewish feasts and festivals, like Passover, these were all created as points of celebration and points of reflection so that people could look back and say, wow, look what God has brought us through. Without those things, we just continue and we look around, we see everything is in destruction, and then we just surrender to the opposition. We're fragile. We need reminders. And for us Christians, this right here, my Bible in my iPad and my Bible in my hands, this is our reminder. This, it's our constant reminder from beginning to end. This book is our promise that God doesn't leave us alone ever. It's our reminder that whoever is set free in Christ from the bondages of this world is free indeed. That's what this book is. And in these passages, what set them free was the Lord's guiding of King King Darius, right? The Lord's hand over all of this. And he set it in motion way before with King Cyrus. King Cyrus could have just spoken that decree. He could have just said it to whoever was listening to appease people, and then that's it. That's where it would die. And so when Tatanai would come and ask King Darius, there'd be no record of it, and what would happen? No more building. There's still the bad Jewish people. He wrote it down. God keeps his promises, and he remembered what he promised Abraham. He remembered that he said he would bless his descendants and make them a great nation. He remembered that he said he would be their God Forever. He remembered that he said all nations would be blessed through him and his descendants and we stand here today because God remembers and keeps his promises. The two things that sustain the, the, the Israelites the prophets and the promise and they all derive from the same place, the Lord. God gave them to the hands of Nebuchadnezzar because they needed discipline. Unfortunate but true. The only reason... They understood that the prophets were speaking of God is because they knew his teachings. They knew what the Lord had already instructed them to do and to believe. And the decree, total provision for them. 100%. It was written down and stored because God knew they would need it, not now, but somewhere in the future, a few decades later. The opposition that we saw in chapter 4 resumed in chapter 5, but this time the Jewish people were better prepared. This time they remembered the promise and walked in that truth. We rebuild by remembering where we started. That's why after Pastor Kevin left this past summer, we immediately, immediately, the week after he left, he announced he was leaving, we went back to our values as a church before we went forward. We immediately went back to the fact that we exist to love God, to love people, to pursue excellence, to live generously, and to have fun while doing it all. We went back to our purpose to make sure that our path was straight. When you're unsure of the direction, you go back to the promise, (laughs) always. Exactly what King Darius did. He was confused. He went back to the promise. He went back to the decree. He went back to what was factual to confirm it. And because the Jewish people knew the teachings, when the promise was spoken over them, they knew it was of the Lord. You can recognize the Lord's voice when you are intimately involved in godly instruction and teaching. The voice of the Lord wakes up the spirit in us and we are immediately drawn back to the source to sustain us. Now, I don't think that God is, well, maybe, calling any of us to build a temple in Jerusalem. Anyone? Okay. Um, However, that does not mean that God is not calling us to do something. I guarantee that God is calling each of us to build something. I 100% know that. Maybe it is a temple, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's pieces of your identity that just have never felt safe enough to breathe. Maybe God's calling you to build that piece of yourself out. Perhaps there are these insane passions running through you, dreams that you don't feel like are allowed to even be spoken or come out of you because it it doesn't make sense. They are. God's calling you to bring those things out of you, to build that, to rebuild that, Perhaps it's relationships that are broken and desperately seeking a bandage. Whatever it is, God is calling you to something. Build or rebuild. Whatever blank slate or pile of rooms you just can't stop thinking about or looking at, trust that God is standing right beside you, looking at them too, wondering when you're going to start to pick up and build. And if in those situations... You feel you're sitting in your head like, yeah, yeah, i tried that, i tried that a hundred times. No, no, I failed, I failed, I failed. If you think that the opposition has won in your situation, know that there is still more to your story. A pastor liked to say, if you're still breathing, God's not done. There is still more. And know that we do not serve a God of runes and empty promises, but a God of restoration and covenant. That's it. That's what you need to know to pick up your first brick and start building again. And this is true, right? But it's not often how we feel, is it? For instance, we love to talk about Psalm 37.4 that states that the Lord will give us the desires of our hearts, the things that we just can't shake from our souls. But what's the first part of that verse? It's less quoted for sure. Take delight in the Lord, and then he will give you the desires of your heart. We forget about the first step. We just want the desires to come. We go to God with our request list on a daily basis. I have a list. I get so wrapped up in it. And even the things that I think are seemingly for God become about me because I forget to check in. So then all of a sudden I've created my own God, <laughs> my own plan. I'm no longer checking in with the source. I'm just asking for the blessing. I want the temple built now, not decades from now. And I do this thing when I'm on planes. I, ha- I don't have a fear of flying at all, um, but I always do this one thing to take before I take off. Actually, I do two things before I take off. One is I text a few friends um, and tell them the number and address of where my dog is and say, you gotta go pick her up if I don't come back, okay? They love it um, <laughs> every single time I fly. And the other thing is that I say three words right before we take off. To myself, I whisper, for your glory. And it's so interesting to me, and I've never, before I was trying to focus on promises and provision, I never really thought about how bizarre it is that I only say it there. And I do it because flying always makes me come to terms with my smallness and God's bigness. It forces me there. It's on planes that I'm most comfortable surrendering myself because I have no choice. I have to. So if something were to happen on that one to 13 hour flight, I want to make sure that the Lord knows that I want to be used for his glory in whatever situation that is. And planes is where the illusion of total control is shattered, right? Completely shattered. And as I've flown a lot more recently, I've wondered why I only do it on planes. It's because I don't want to admit this to myself, but I like to think I'm in control on the ground. I do. I think I can build my own temple, and I need to correct that, because I don't want everything to be for God's glory just in the air, in a little tube. I want what's happening here on the streets, in this place, in my heart, to all be for God's glory, regardless of where I am, so that I can build what he is calling me to build. So how do we start building or rebuilding what God has called us to? In the same way that the Jewish people did it centuries ago, the prophets and the promise. We heed wisdom from the prophets around us, God's people. Who are the prophets in your lives? Who are they? And it sounds like a super scary question, I know, but if the word prophet freaks you out, just forget about the word and know that a prophet could be somebody who God has actually given divine wisdom to, who could speak into the future, but it's also somebody who is just in step with God and in step with the word, and constantly seeking the divine in whatever earthly situation is happening. Just think of them as people you know who recenter you on God's presence, who you go to to hear God's word. Those are the people who see a worldly matter and understand the spiritual rooting on the, for all of the issues that we just see on the surface. So go to those people. Seek their guidance, seek their wisdom. And then we cling to our promise, God's word. I heard a pastor say that when the word of God becomes common to us, we will have access to it, but it will not have impact on our lives. This is not like any other book. And we know this because it still outsells Harry Potter. Right? This book is special for a reason. It's for us, it's about us, it's a direct love letter from our creator to us and we need to be in it daily, through devotionals, through reading chapters. I've said it before that the Bible has a built-in devotional, the book of Proverbs. There's a chapter for every single day of the month. And when we go to God's word, we are reminded of the promises and when we regularly engage with God's word, we can recognize it when others bring it to heal us. And there are over 3000 promises throughout scripture. So there is something for everybody. And lastly, if you are already doing these things and listening to wise counsel uh, and reading the word, uh, just know that you've got to stick with it. Pastor Jeff just mentioned last week that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And so if you are to build something, nothing that you can do or I will do will stop the Lord from building it. We are not that powerful. Know that deeply within yourself as you get frustrated waiting to build the temple. You position yourself for the temple building by heeding the words of the prophets and by placing your hope on the known promise, the word of God. So two quick action items this week. If you haven't read Ezra, it's 10 chapters. Please read it. That's a side thing. Um, Again, it's really helpful for just context and reminders of God's provision and promise. But also look at your prayer list. Find where God is missing and adjust it to the source instead of the request. Prayer is not transactional. It's all about our relationship. So look at your prayer list and adjust it to God's heart, not yours. And then find one promise of God in Scripture and memorize it as if it'll save your life. Sounds foolish, but it will. When opposition comes, when the enemy comes to get you, you can rest and you can repeat and you can be saturated in God's word. And that's what's going to pull us through. That's what's going to build temples. And I hope you all come back next week and join us as the namesake of the book, Ezra, makes his first appearance. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the space. I thank you for everybody who sat here. I thank you for even a phrase or a a sentence or a thought that you just glued into their heart throughout this message. Whatever it is they came to hear, Lord, I pray that that not only did they hear it, but they absorbed it. I pray that you you go with them as they leave this space. I pray that people in this room are thinking about the godly, wise counsel in their life. I pray that they're thinking about opening up the Bible to see every single promise, all of the love letters that you have written to us, Lord. I pray that they are looking forward to seeking your face in all things and bringing glory to your name. We love you and we thank you. Amen.